0: Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. ...and God's will for our lives. So today we continue by talking about the first sinners, and uh, we are going to <clears throat> look at the passage that... Was read for us by uh, um, by John this morning. So, in a Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare's play, he has a character who offers these descriptive words: "Lord, what fools we mortals be! Lord, what fools we mortals be!" And those words apply to the first sinners, but they apply, unfortunately, to each one of us here this morning as well. I'm not going to take time to reread the passage that John shared with us, but we're going to break out some specific sections of that this morning to look at it together. I'm going to share with you a preacher story from some years ago when preachers use ancient words uh, in their sermons. Some of you may feel I use some ancient words in my sermons as well. But um, you may recall that that a a leaf in the old days meant either to leaf through a book, not if you remember that. Anybody remember that? Okay. And a a page was called a a leaf. Um, And so you kind of need to know that as the background. To this story so there was a there was an older pastor who was incredibly boring and uh, very unlike your pastor very he was incredibly boring and uh the young people in the church just could could not handle this guy because he he read every word in the manuscript and he just kind of droned on and on you you know what i'm you kind of get the picture here but the kids in the church noticed that he had a particular habit, and that is when he came in to church uh, for for the service, um, he would lay his notes down on the pulpit, and then he would go kneel in one of those, remember those old pastor chairs that were kind of like a throne? He, he would go kneel there for a few minutes before the service began. And so they went up, they went to the stage, and uh, while he was praying, they pulled out a number of pages from his sermon so now he too was talking about Adam and Eve and as he was doing his you know sort of his monotone piece and he said um, and Adam said to Eve at the bottom of one page and Adam said to Eve and then he goes back No, well, there seems to be a leaf missing um <laughs> Maybe maybe this afternoon sometime that'll, uh, that'll kick in for you. So as we have been sharing in this series, we recognize that God created Adam and Eve to have fellowship with him. And the great challenge uh, was that God created us as human beings to be able to love him and to be able to respond to him. But in order to do that, we had to have a free will. He didn't want automatons. He wasn't forcing us to love him because love would be meaningless, and so he gave us a free will, and we discover in Genesis chapter 3, what we're talking about today is that Adam and Eve use their free will to go a different direction, and God uh, unfortunately having given us a free will, we have unfortunately gone in the same direction, each one of us as well. As we've been talking about the series, it's important for us, I think, to understand that when God created Adam and Eve, He created human beings to take creation forward, to make even more of creation. And uh, we have the, the beauty of incredible gardens that have taken the, the, the raw material that God has given us and has produced the, some of those wonders. We also have the, the wonders of ancient structures, the cathedrals in Europe that we see, the, the uh, pyramids in Egypt, the the kind of the wonders of the world and, and then the beauty of human creation, the, the marvelous works of a da Vinci and Renaissance artists. And we have the, the music of Bach who used to write on his manuscript, sola dio gloria, to God alone be the glory. We have these beautiful pieces of the goodness of God and the, the wonders of modern medicine that never cease to amaze us. The psalmist talks about this in Psalm 139, verse 14, where he says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We know the goodness of God. We know the goodness of someone like Mother Teresa. We know the sacrifice of those who have given up much for the sake of others. But we also know the other side of human existence. We have been, as human beings, capable of great evil I was thinking about the aftermath of 9-11 and the global war on terror, what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, and now continues to happen um, with ISIS and other other forms of evil that have been going on in the Middle East. A report from a few years ago revealed ISIS fighters had killed 24,000 Iraqi civilians. They've recruited 12- and 13-year-old fighters and sold women into sex slavery. We have the terrible images of Christians being martyred, being beheaded by ISIS people. And then in more modern times, we have the tragedy this year of the war in Ukraine, where some 6,000 civilians have been killed in that war to date, and it seems so senseless We're reminded of the great evils of the Nazis during World War II, the the five million Jews that were killed, and amazingly, 70,000 disabled Germans killed because they didn't seem, the Nazi government didn't seem them worthy of life. However, when I hear about this enormous evil, I'm reminded of the Jewish witness at the Nuremberg war trials where he went on that famous stand to testify against the Nazi officer and what had taken place and when he was on that stand he completely broke down and was unable to continue his testimony and he ended up as a result of that being asked afterwards was it the memory of the terrible things that happened in that concentration camp that caused you to completely break down and collapse. And he said, no, it was on the stand when I realized that I was capable of doing the same things that he did. Friends, it's important, I think, for us to recognize that the story of Adam and Eve is so powerful because it's not just an ancient story. It's our story as well. Something went terribly wrong with humanity in the garden. And as a result, we have our own propensity to sin. And when we have the moral capability to know right from wrong, inevitably we will make some wrong choices. Notice the approach taken by the serpent in the garden. In Revelation chapter 12, the serpent is clearly identified with the devil and with Satan. Notice what happens here. The devil, Satan, the serpent, first of all, attacks the word of God. He attacks God's word. Uh, We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman... Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? The devil begins to doubt, put doubt in the mind of Eve as to whether in fact this has really been an expression of God's word for them. He says, did God really do this and the serpent as we said was more crafty did God actually say this and then he goes on to say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden is that what God actually said so he begins to plant doubt in her mind that the word of God can actually be trusted when confronted by the Pharisees interestingly Jesus elaborates on the character of the serpent or the devil in his relationship to the truth this is what he says in John 8 he says you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies now there are three approaches to the word of God now obviously the word of God can be expressed uh, in, 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 in a direct form, as here we have the expression of God speaking directly. But for us, by and large, God speaks to us today through his word, what we call the word of God or the Bible. And for most folks today, there are really three approaches. One approach is to simply disregard the Bible and uh, it say it may be an interesting book, or it's full of fables, or it's not really relevant to my life, but basically it's not read. it's just set aside. The second approach is a belief that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God, and that it's truth, and that we are to live our lives based upon what is given to us as truth in the scriptures. But there's a third approach, and I think maybe the most challenging, perhaps most difficult approach, and that is to say that there are parts of the Bible that contain the Word of God, and we need to determine which of those are true and which of those aren't. And by and large, when we adopt that philosophy, we lean into the passages that deal with God's love and grace, and we tend not to spend as much time on those passages that deal with obedience. It's important, I think, for us to understand that when that happens, the Bible tends to look like the pages of a very progressive newspaper. Friends, truth is binary. There's no middle when it comes to truth. Either the Bible is the Word of God or it's not. Either it's true or it's not true, but there's no middle ground. And certainly, we aren't the ones to determine what is true and what isn't. On Friday morning, the prayer app Lectio 365 honored the Queen. Pete Grigg said these words. He said, at her coronation, the Queen was presented with a Bible as these extraordinary words rang out in Westminster Abbey and around the world. The words are, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the living oracles of God. Now, the queen, for her coronation, was wearing a priceless golden crown. It was adorned with 2,901 precious stones. She was sitting on a throne in a thousand-year-old vaulted abbey, and yet God's word was recognized as the most valuable thing this world affords. Thousands of years before this, the psalmist put it this way, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commandments are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. So the first thing that the enemy does in the garden, in the temptation, is to undermine the veracity, the truth of God's word, of what he said to them. The second thing he goes after here is God's goodness. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You remember what God said to Adam and Eve was you can eat of anything you want in the garden, just not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, that's where the scene of this temptation comes. And now the enemy is trying to influence Eve to the fact that God Is not really, not only not being truthful with her, but he's not good because if God was good, he would want her to have everything, including the knowledge from the tree of good and evil that in fact would make her like God. And God was holding back. He was holding out on her in that way. What the serpent says is actually the words from Isaiah that describe Satan's character where he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The serpent promises divinity. By eating of the tree, Adam and Eve could be like God. God's motive for their obedience is now called into question. Maybe God doesn't have your best interests at heart. Maybe God isn't good after all. The larger point is that the devil implies that God is not good and he doesn't want the best for his children. Now, I have to say, frankly, this this is a tough one. It's a tough one for all of us in terms of the goodness of God. And the reason it's tough is that if we've lived very long at all, we know that bad things do, in fact, happen to good people. This week, we were saddened to hear of the de Havilland Turban Otter aircraft that went down in Mutiny Bay off Whidbey Island. Ten people on board. Um, so many families affected by those. If you've had a chance to read any of the stories of those who went down with the airplane. Tragedy. Just just tragic. We, we don't understand. You know, there, there, there will be an investigation and there will be an explanation. Um, but tragedy like that is so difficult. Since Genesis 3 and the fall, tragedy has befallen the innocent, and we wonder why. But the Word of God teaches clearly that while there is much we don't know, God is good. The thing is, if we believe in God, we can find contentment in Him. We would rather be in the palm of His hand than anywhere else. Alan Gardner was a Royal Navy officer who returned to Patagonia. He returned to the southern tip of South America as a missionary after his naval service. He experienced many physical difficulties and hardships throughout his service to the Savior. Despite his troubles, he said, well, God gives me strength. Failure will not daunt me. In 1851, at the age of 57, he died of disease and starvation while serving on Picton Island at the southern tip of South America. When his body was found, his diary was found nearby, and it bore a record of hunger, thirst, wounds, and loneliness. The last entry in his little book showed the struggle and the shaking hand as he tried to write legibly. And that last entry read, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God, overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. We see the enemy began by undermining truth, and then he continued by undermining the essence of God, His goodness towards us, His love towards us, and then now he continues. In the seduction of Eve with an appeal to her senses. So we read, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The apostle John puts this temptation rather starkly. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The serpent here tried to lower the barrier to sin. Instead of a high bar... It was a low bar. And he questioned God's truth, God's motives. And then he offered Eve what appeared to be good and a delight and to be desired. The the root of that word desired means to covet, to want what someone else has. God has designed us as human beings in a way that we are attracted to the good We all love beauty. For some of us, that might be classical music or pop music um, or John Campbell, who read the scripture for us this morning. Um, It's hard rock music. He loves hard rock music. I don't know if you're allowed to be an elder at North Sound and Love, but apparently you are. So anyway, we, we are drawn to those things. John, I was just talking about you. Hopefully you didn't hear I was telling the folks about things that we're attracted to, and some are attracted to classical music. Then I said, You're attracted to hard rock music. So some folks may want to talk to you afterwards. And yeah. <laughs> so there are things that we are drawn to. We are drawn to art. Some of us are drawn to the beauty of creation and nature. But we are drawn to these things that are beautiful. In, in marriage, the relationship that God has between a man and a woman to have sexual fulfillment in the context of a marriage is a beautiful thing. But when it gets outside of that context and can move from what is beautiful and good to raw lust, it tends to have very bad consequences in the lives of people. God created things that are good and we are attracted to them but too much creates a problem I remember talking to a friend who had an issue with alcohol he was an alcoholic and I, and I asked him about his journey there and many of us here enjoy a glass of wine and uh, God's first miracle was turning the water into wine but, but for this individual um, he got to the place where he said basically what happened is he had one too many beers and found that things had gone upside down for him and now instead of engaging in the, the beauty and the joy of a drink, it had gone upside down and now he couldn't control himself and it had become the master and now he needed to do that. That's essentially the story of going from beauty to lust and the consequences that we experience as a result. By the way, before just finishing up here, a fascinating side effect, a sidebar comment here in parentheses is that we're kind of hard on the ladies sometimes because this story is mostly about Eve. But notice how hard the devil had to work to get Eve to sin. And notice in the passage that John read for us that Adam simply took the fruit. She had to be seduced. The temptation had to be strong. And and Adam simply just took the fruit. So guys, we don't escape very well on this one either. So as we conclude today, how does this play out in our own lives in the 21st century? Paul described two kinds of people. He said the first have their minds set on the flesh. And the second on what he refers to as the mind set on the spirit, Romans 8, 5 to 7. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. If your sinful nature controls your mind, there is death. But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, there is life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. So, folks, sin is real. We all fall short of God's intention for us universally. We're all broken people. It's why when we recognize our brokenness, we can relate so well to each other because we understand what we see in the other person because we see it in ourselves. We're, we're, we're broken people. Sin is to fall short of God's intention for us, but it's also when we willfully choose to go a different direction. We know what obedience means. We know what God wants us to do, but we willfully choose to do something else. If we sacrifice the truth of the word of God, then we're left to our own devices. We make up our own truth with no moral foundation. We don't even recognize our sin by choosing To follow God, it's far more than cheap grace and easy believism, simply that God loves us and because He loves us, we can do whatever we want. We call that moral autonomy. We call that not following the truth of God's Word, but making up our own rules as we go along. Following God is to present ourselves for transformation which is a lifelong process. It leads to radical character change where we stand up and do our part to change the world for the better to actively work in our world today for the values of the kingdom of God. A Pastor Barry sermon would not be complete without a quotation from yes, thank you. (laughs) Um, In The Abolition of Man, he wrote some 70 years ago, he bemoaned the rise of men without chess who wimped out, I don't think he used that word, but who wimped out on their responsibilities in the world. He said, "And and all the time such is the tragic comedy of our situation We continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. I want you to think about this. He wrote this 70 years ago, and it's only gotten worse. He said, you can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity in a sort of ghastly simplicity we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. I suspect you've never heard of Reuben Navarrete Jr., And certainly not his wife. Navarrete is a writer for the Daily Beast. And he had been pro-choice regarding abortion. And he began to reconsider his view in light of the videotapes several years ago that came out that were recorded in um, Planned Parenthood clinics regarding the disposition of parts of the the fetus. And uh, he shares this, um, talking about the need for men with chests. He says, as I've only realized lately, to be a man and to declare yourself pro choice is to proclaim your neutrality. And as I've only recently been willing to admit, even to myself, that's another name for wimping out. At least that's how my wife sees it. She's pro life, and so she's been tearing into me every time a new video is released. She's not buying my argument that as a man, I have to defer to women and trust them to make their own choices about what to do with their bodies. To her, that's ridiculous and cowardly. You can't stand on the sidelines, his wife says. Now that you've seen these videos, she told me recently, she said, that's BS. These are babies that are being killed, millions of them, and you need to use your voice to protect them. That's what a man does. He protects children, his own children and other children. That's what it means to be a man, she said. Friends, what does it mean to be a Christian man or a woman in these times in which we live. I think it begins by realizing we too are Adam and Eve. We're sinners. But having been saved by God's grace, the grace that sent Jesus to the cross to become the means by which our sins are forgiven, we are not to give obedience to the enemy, but we are to obey the Lord, giving our lives as living sacrifices in obedience to his purposes. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word, which is a light to our feet and a a lamp to our pathway. I thank you, Lord, that you have called each one of us to serve you and we thank you, Lord, that even though we have been broken by the sin in our life, we recognize, Lord, the power of your word, the word of truth. We recognize your goodness. And we recognize, Lord, the beauty for which you have created us. Lord, help us to carry forward in our lives, in what we say and do, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth the goodness, and the beauty, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.